beautiful segue. Let's give it up for Logan. I got to tell you, I am, I am so grateful for everybody who works so hard and faithfully around here in serving. Now, how many know it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas? How many are excited about it? Where are my Christmas people? You love Christmas. How many of you, you're moderate on Christmas? How many of you like going, it's just another day? Don't raise your hand because we don't want you to feel shame and, and all that. But, hey, can I just say thank you to everybody who, who works so hard in, in just getting our campuses, both our campuses, ready for Christmas. I think it looks beautiful. And, you know, I, I love it because it's an opportunity for decorations Christmas. There's some excitement in the air. There's some carols. How many are tired yet of Christmas music? Anybody honest yet? Nobody yet. This is good. Give it another week. Um, you know, but, but it's fun that there's Hallmark movies. How many have been embracing your Christmas Hallmark movie time? Emily was talking with us last night, and she was mentioning about some Hallmark movie that involves a hockey player. And so she's just like, I'm going to have to watch that one. And I'm like going, okay, Hallmark and hockey and Christmas. That sounds like a great thing. But have you ever noticed that Christmas ultimately is about living in anticipation for the coming of a day? Like all of us, all we're, we're doing right now, with, with the, with, whether it's with the decorations, the carols, the singing, the shopping, the, the preparations, we're all moving toward and anticipating a day coming. There is a day that's coming. And you know, the Advent season, so, so for followers of Jesus for 2,000 years, we have been celebrating often what's called Advent. Advent is the celebration of God's coming. We remember what he's done in the past, but it's, there's also this sense of anticipation that God is coming in the future. And that his coming for you and for me, whether it's in the past, whether it's in the uh, present, or even in the future, that his coming to us gives us joy. And so this season, we're going to be talking about experiencing the joy of Christmas. Now, joy can be defined a lot of different ways. Uh, joy is an emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. Have you ever had those moments where you had something exceptionally good and you're just like, going, this is just beautiful, this is just amazing? It's also a source or cause of keen pleasure or delight, something or someone greatly valued or appreciated. There's a sense of joy that comes with it. Now, as we think about this idea of joy... I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said, and I love this, that joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. You may not realize this, but, but God's desire is to pour out joy upon his people. That God longs to bring joy. And so as we begin looking at this idea of experiencing the joy of Christmas, today we're going to talk about breaking the silence. Now, how many know silence comes in a whole bunch of different shapes and forms, and, and we feel silence sometimes different ways? Have you ever had that blissful silence? You know what I'm talking about. Especially if you have kids, it's before the kids get up, and you have your cup of coffee, and it's just quiet, and it's blissfully silent. How many love those moments? Or maybe it's after they go to bed, and you're just like, oh my goodness, it's just, it's just silence. And you want to sing silent night. And we love that song, right? It's just like, ah, oh, there's, that, there's that blissful or peaceful silence. How many know there's also awkward silences? You, you know those awkward silences? Okay, so I was thinking about awkward silence. So, so in your relationship, 
Who was the first one to say, I love you? Okay, so think about it. If you got your spouse here, you can dialogue between yourself. Who was the first one to say, I love you? Now, how many of you, your husbands, you were, you were up. You, it was like, man, it was you. Okay, how many of you ladies, you were the first to say, I love you? How many are still not sure if you love them? You're like, I don't even remember that. Okay, so I remember the first in, in my relationship with Rachel, the first one to say I love you is Rachel. It wasn't me. It was Rachel. And I remember the moment. It is so clear in my mind. I can still see it. Okay? We were in her apartment, and, and I remember standing there, and I'm so much taller than her. At least this is the way I, I in my mind. And I'm looking down at her, and she's looking up at me, and she's got her big, beautiful blue eyes, and they're all batting. And in a soft, sweet voice, she says, I love you. And I said, thank you. (laughs) And there was awkward silence. Now, just so you know, I finally got past it. So last week, I told her I loved her, so... But, but, you know, the, the, the awkward silence, it's that thing where you're like, uh, what, what should I do? So there's blissful silence, awkward silence. But how many know sometimes there's a painful silence? The silence of not knowing. The silence of waiting, the, the silence where you're just like, going, you know what, I have been praying, I have been asking, I have been seeking, I have been expecting, and I have heard nothing. Have you ever had those moments in your journey? Silence. You're like, God, where are you? What am I supposed to do? God, God, what, what is it that you want? And, and you lift up prayers, but there is just silence. You just wait for an answer. I think many times we live in the tension, just simply wondering, God, where are you? God, where are you in, in, in this moment, in this situation, in this day? And, 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 you, and you offer up the prayers and you hear nothing. As we come to this story, we're going to look in Luke chapter 1. I believe that this, this story wants to speak to us and to anyone who is wrestling with a painful silence. And as we go through the story, we're going to find out that God is weaving his purpose through our story. And that even though we may not always hear it, God is present and God is working and God is moving. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. Now Luke is writing, he's researched the story of Jesus, and he writes down his account. And what he writes in the birth of Jesus sets the tone and the stage for his entire gospel as well as for the book of Acts. And what's amazing about the story is it actually begins in obscurity and unexpectedly with an elderly couple. And so it begins in uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 5 by saying, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive 
and they were both very old. As we come to the story, we find out that, that, that there, there's this idea that I think that just kind of rises as Luke begins to tell the story and he highlights the tension. And the tension is simply this, life does not always go as expected. Anybody here have expectations about how life is supposed to go? And then you find out it didn't go like that. Maybe it was marriage. Maybe it was, you know, I was going to start this career path. And then you went to school and you're like, yeah, no, that's not it. It could be with the way kids, it could be family, it could be whatever it is. But we find out that life doesn't go as expected. And because of that, 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 that disappointment of expectation, there's a dissonance that arises in our hearts. And, and you can hear as Luke writes about Zechariah and Elizabeth, that there's a certain sense of dis- dissonance that they're feeling, that they've been doing everything right, yet they're not experiencing what they hoped for or what they longed for. Have you ever met people that that you've thought, you know, these are the people that are going to make it. These are the people that have everything lined up properly. They've got their ducks in a row, and and if it's going to work for anyone, it's going to work for them. And this is Zechariah and Elizabeth. You see, they were people who were from the right heritage. They They were descendants of Aaron. And as descendants of Aaron, they had a certain privilege. They had the privilege that, that, that the Aaronic family, they had the ability to get as close to God as was humanly possible in that time because they could enter the temple. They had the right heritage. Not only that, they had the right character and the right conduct. They, they were righteous. They held God's commands and decrees blamelessly. Yet there was something missing. It says they were childless. Now, now when we hear that in our culture, you know, that that may cause some sadness. But but you have to understand, in in Jewish culture, kids meant a whole lot of things. It, It was actually a sign that you were blessed. It was a sign that you had the favor of God on your life, that you had children. You see, children were a source both of joy and security. Now, we all know with kids, how many of kids are a source of joy? We, we love them. They're just, they're so much fun. And, and, you know, for those with young kids, you'll eventually get to the place where sometimes you just, you just sit back and you're like, dude, I am so proud of you. You just smile and you're amazed and your kids give a sense of joy. I know, like, for me, like, one of the best things I ever did or done, like, my life's accomplishments it's just watching my kids do amazing. And I recognize in that that was all Rachel's hard work and just my <laughs> me cheering them on, right? You know, so, but, but you, you look and you're like, oh my goodness, there's such a, there's such a, a joy, a, a pride that children bring. But also in Elizabeth's and Zechariah's time, children also represented security. So they didn't have welfare systems or, or social security systems like we have. And so as you got older, the question is, is who's going to take care of you? And if you have kids, your kids take care of you. How many of you, your kids threaten you every once in a while? Just remember, Dad, we get to watch over you when you're older, right? You know, and all that fun stuff. But, but for El- Elizabeth and Zechariah, not only were they childless, and they were missing that sense of joy, there was also a sense of, so who's going to watch over us? 
And, and we find out that they're just not old, they're very old. And, and when you get very old, you, you begin thinking, okay, well, who's going to go first and who's going to take care of who? And, 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 and how is this all going to work out? What, what are we going to do with these things? And, and Elizabeth and Zechariah, they didn't have the joy nor the security. And I'm sure for them it caused enormous dissonance. Because even though they had the right heritage and they were doing the right things, life was not going as hoped or expected. And because of that, they were dealing, I'm sure, with frustration and discouragement, much like you and I do. And not only that, they felt shame. Specifically Elizabeth, because she was just like, she couldn't have, she couldn't have children. And, and so there's a sense of, what do you do as, as like the only woman who doesn't have children in your peer group? And so there's this sense of, of, of shame. There's this sense of, okay, how do you keep going? Because everything's not going as expected. Yet as we come to the story, we find out they're very old. And how many know that time has a way that, that as expectations aren't met, you just kind of, you get to a place of just acceptance. This is just what it's going to be. This is just what is. And there's a sense that, they're both very old. It's no more, no more use to hope for children. So they've just adjusted to and accepted the lot that they have. Now, one thing I will note about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that despite their dissonance, they maintained their character. They remained faithful and consistent. And I think this is such an important lesson because in our lives, many times, we don't experience the life that we expected. And sometimes as a result of that, what we want to do is we begin to act out and we say, you know, well, why does it matter anymore? Let me just do whatever feels good, whatever I want. Yet Elizabeth and Zechariah remained faithful. And they allowed their faith to rise above their circumstance. And I think that's important. So as we see their story, the beginning of their story, life doesn't go always as expected. Yet what we find out is that God is working through the events to advance his purpose. It goes on to say in verse 8 that once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, I think this is a great part of the story because it, it helps us begin to understand a few things. Number one, our dissonance does not mean that God is not up to something. I want you to hear that because even though life may not be going as you expect or as you dream or as you hope, doesn't mean God's not up to something. That even as Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, there, there's this sense of, not, not living that which they hoped for. God was still moving. And we find this, that, that God has a way of getting his people in the right place at the right time in order to accomplish his purpose. And so when you read in the story that Zechariah was chosen by Lot. And now just so you know, Lot is not the person Lot, it's by drawing straws. Anybody here ever played the game drawing straws? Who gets the short end? Well, they had a system somewhat similar where 
duties were assigned via lot. That, that, that it, was, it was the way you found out what was I going to do. You know, you got all these jobs, you got all these people, and they would just draw names. You know, maybe you do this at Christmas time where you have, like, Christmas gifts, and you take all the names of your, like, siblings or whatever, and you draw a name, and you're just like, okay, well, I got this person. In, in the Jewish culture, that this drawing of lots was far more than just random chance or pulling a name out of the hat. You see, over in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says this, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they have this idea that, you know what, even though they may be drawing lots or drawing names or drawing assignments, that God is at work even in this. And God began to orchestrate events. So his, his lot got called so that he could be at the place where he would go into the temple and begin to offer incense. Now, when we think about the temple, you know, we, we sometimes have, um, it may not make as much sense to us because we think, well, a temple, it's just a room. But the way the temple was set up is, is there was this sense that how do you live with God's presence in your midst and, and who can approach God? And so there was all these different barriers that began to filter out who could get the closest to God. And so what would happen in the temple system, there, there was actually what was called the court of the Gentile, that if you were a Gentile, you could only get that close to God and then no more. And then there was the court of the women, that if you were a Jewish woman, you could actually get past the court of the Gentile and you get to the court of the women. And then you would hang out there. But then after that, you got to, in a sense, the court of the men. And then from there, where, where all Jewish men could go. But then after that, you started getting into the temple building itself. And in the temple building, there was a place that at the very core or the very place where God's presence was called to dwell was called the Holy of Holies. And once every year, one person who was of the line of Aaron could go into that place. But every day, a descendant of Aaron, their name would be chosen, and they would be able to go into the room just before the Holy of Holies. It was called the Holy Place. And in the Holy Place, there were different, different uh, divisions of, of things or different items there that, that reflected worship to God, and one of them happened to be the altar of incense. And so, Zechariah, when he drew his name, he went as close to where God's presence was as was allowed on that day. And it was in that place that something remarkable happened. And this is what it says. In verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John, and he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I love this because as, as Zechariah is in this most holy place, as he is burning incense, he has this encounter with God. Now, the burning of incense was actually that this physical representation of part of what the priest's responsibility was. And that is to offer up prayers to God. Now, if you've ever been in a church, there are some churches that still burn incense. And, and, and sometimes they'll walk down the middle aisle and they'll have some incense and a little thing. And they'll wave it around. And there's something burning and everybody smells it. And then if you look, there's smoke that's slowly going up. And it's a picture, it's a representation of the prayers of the people. And Zechariah is in that most holy place, he's in that, that holy place, and, and as he's in that holy place, he, he's, he's burning incense, the people outside are praying. And then God shows up. He sends his angel. And, the, and, and, and it is in response to the prayers that are prayed, and, and I love this, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. I think this is a huge thing. Your prayer has been heard. Anybody who's dealing with dissonance between the expectation and their reality, between that which is hoped for, that which sometimes where we're dealing with our disappointment, our delusion, our, our delusionment, our, our, our sense of like, God, we are, we are not experiencing what we're called to. There's a message I believe that we all need to hear, and that is simply this. Your prayers are heard. That in the midst of your dissonance, God cares deeply about you, and he is not indifferent to your struggles. This is actually one of the big themes that we find throughout the Bible, that God is not indifferent to the prayers and cries of his people. When his children were in Egypt, it tells us in, in Exodus 2 that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant, and he looked on the Israelites and was concerned for them. I want you to know it may be that you are in a place where you are wrestling with some dissonance in this season. I want you to know your prayer is heard. How many know that Christmas is not always an easy and joyful time for everybody? For some, it's a reminder of loss. Sometimes it's, it, it's, there's disappointment and there's hurts. But I want you to understand that even though life may not be perfect and it hasn't gone as you hoped or expected, that even in this, situ in, this, in this time and in the midst of your situations, you need to understand that your prayers are heard. And I love this because the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John and he will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord that he will be a joy and delight to you 
You see, God is working to bring joy and delight to his people. That God is actually working in our lives to restore rejoicing. And you need to hear this. You need to understand and you need to know it that, that as we come to this season, our hope is not in the decorations. Our hope isn't in the, the you know, e- even in just what's happened in the past. It's the fact that God is working in our present and he is working in the future in order to bring rejoicing to all people, to all of us, to his people. You see, the story, the great story of humanity is this, is that our lives have been broken and ruined by sin. And there was nothing that we could do to break its power upon our lives or to undo its consequences. Yet God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves through the sending of Jesus. Through his death and his resurrection, we have the promise and hope of restoration. And I want you to understand that the restoration of joy flows from the restoration of lives. That when we begin to understand that God is restoring us, there's a joy that is restored, that, that, that becomes restored in our being. And this is why God sent Jesus. This is why Jesus came, in order to restore joy. Further, it says in verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, what you may not understand, this passage, some if you look in your Bible, some of them will actually reference Malachi chapter four, uh, sorry, Malachi four, verses five and six, which happen to be the last words of the prophetic books. So in our Bible, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. In the Jewish scriptures, Malachi is the last book or the last part of the scrolls of the prophets. In a sense, it's the last that God has spoken. And, and in a sense, there's this sense of, well, now we're in a, in a peace or a time of silence. That waiting silence. That silence of the the word of God spoke. Listen, I will send somebody and he will prepare a way for the coming of the Lord. He he will begin to say, you know, it's time for a change. It's time to turn. It's time to, to, you know, and and it talks about this restoration of relationships, the the turning of the fathers to the children. It it talks about this idea of wisdom and righteousness. It's about this great restoration that's going to come in anticipation of God's coming. And so as the angel Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, that silence is broken. The waiting is over. God is acting. I think this is so important for you and me to understand that with the coming of Jesus, the silence has been broken. He cares about us. And he is working in our lives and through our lives because he is working to work restoration. Anything touched and ruined by sin, by his grace, he can change. And part of it for us then is to begin to find our hope, not in our situations and circumstances, but in our Savior. 
See, God is weaving his purpose through our story. And even though you might be saying, I, I don't understand, I can't see, I want you to understand, God is working. He is moving. And even though we may experience the, the, the dissonance that comes even with this season, we need to be reminded that God still hears our prayers. And he breaks the silence to bring us joy. So the question for us is, what do we do in the waiting? What do we do in the waiting until we see that, that, that restoration, until we see the fullness of it? What do we do? I think we need to keep worshiping. We need to be a people who choose to magnify our Savior rather than our circumstances. We, we need to say, you know what? Even though things may not be going as I hoped or even as I imagined, you know what I'm going to choose to do? I am going to choose to worship God. Because here's the thing, you never know what happens when you begin to worship. You never know what happens when you come into God's presence because there can be a moment that all of a sudden something has changed. For Zechariah, when he came into God's presence, everything changed for him. You see, we need to be a people, even in our waiting, who keep worshiping. But not only that, we need to keep aligning with his purpose. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we need to continue to pursue a life of righteousness. We need to continue to live right even when it doesn't seem like everything is going right. You see, our life needs to arise out of our faith rather than giving expression to all our frustrations. When we allow our frustrations to rule our behavior, you'll find out it just creates a whole lot more mess. But when you choose to allow your faith to rise, you see, we need to keep worshiping. We need to keep aligning with this purpose. But not only that, we need to keep interceding. Your prayers matter. I know some of you, you're praying for your kids, your kids, for their salvation, for their good. I want you to know your prayers matter. Some of you, you're, you're praying for a restoration of, of, of a hurt or th there's a struggle that you're in the midst of. We need to be reminded that God sees, he hears, and he cares. And that he is working in our lives even when we don't feel it or even when we don't see it. So we have to keep worshiping. We keep aligning with this purpose. We keep interceding. And lastly, we keep trusting. One of the things that I learned many years ago, um, we, we were following, you know, our life. We've, we've decided we're just going to follow God wherever he wants us to go. And we get this sense, God, what are you asking of us? And we try to live out his purpose. So we served as youth pastors. And then that season came to a close. And we're like, God, what do you want us to do next? And we really felt impressed that God wanted us to, to pastor a church. So we're like, perfect, let's pastor a church, let's do it. Okay, God, where? Silence. Now, one of the things that I struggled with then, I probably still struggle with it now, maybe not as much as I used to, but I used to struggle with a, a, a connection between purpose and value. That when I'm doing something, I have value. When I'm not doing something, 
I don't have value. Anybody have those moments? Right? Just so you know, this is what you have to understand, that, that our doing doesn't make us valuable. We are valuable. Right? But I got to tell you, my, my heart was jacked as a young man, a wife, a kid, um, one on the way, knowing God's called me to, to lead pastor and going, okay, God, where are you? And it was all silence. Like we would pray, God, give us clarity in silence. And um, even when we began to get clarity, there was just a sense there's no way we can do it. And we're just like, okay, God, how? And, and I just remember all this, this season of just, it was, it was painful. God was gracious, but oh my goodness, waiting stinks. I still hate waiting. Like, I avoid lines. Like, I would rather wait somewhere else and wait for lines to go down rather than just to stand in a line and do nothing. And uh, I remember in that season because one of the things that I would do, uh, so I did construction during that time, but the other thing that I would do is if there was a church that, would, that needed somebody to preach, I'd go preach. And I was in the, in the midst of this whole season of, okay, God, what am I supposed to do? And the verse that just came to my heart that I wrestled with and was mulling over again and again and again was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. Trust in the Lord, and he will direct. The idea of directing there is that God actually knows what he's doing. Surprise. But it made me think of symphonies. How many of you love symphonies? I, I, love, I love all sorts of music, but I love symphonies. The other day, somebody on their Facebook wall put up this thing of uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And, and I watched it, and if you know Beethoven's Night, that's the Ode to Joy part, like the Ode to Joy. It was, and, and, I was, and I was sitting there, and I was listening to all these instruments coming together, the building of the music, the swelling, and then all these people begin to sing. And I'm sitting there, and I got, like, tears running down my face because I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is so beautiful and soul-enriching. I love that kind of music. And I remember back when I was in this time of wrestling this image of God as the great conductor. And not only has he, is he conducting a piece of music, but he's conducting a piece of music he's already written. And if you've ever done music or learned about writing music, or if you've learned music, you'll find out that when they write music, even in these great, great symphonies, the writer of the music will write silence into the piece. Silence, where the horn doesn't sound, or the viola, or the cello, the violin, the flute. It's silence. Yet God knows what he's doing because not only did he rake the piece, he's conducting it, and it is a masterpiece.
And one of the things that I had to learn to do, and I'm still learning this lesson, is trusting God in the silence. Because the silence is a part of the score. And it may be that in this season that you're, you're, you're wrestling because you're like, oh my goodness, I just, God, I can't hear you. And there's silence and, it's, and there's the dissonance of that. God still knows what he's doing. And we have to keep trusting. And we have to learn to trust even in silence. Because this is what we believe. That one day he's going to come and he's going to make everything right. That everything broken and ruined by sin, he will restore. That there's coming a day that, that you know what, he's going to like change us completely. It's going to transform our world. He's going to heal every hurt and every sickness. He's going to wipe away every tear. There's a day that's coming. Christmas is about living in anticipation of a day, a day that brings great joy. But it's not just a past date. It's our future. It's our hope. The psalmist would write this, listen, weeping may remain for the night. But joy comes in the morning. I want you to know there's a joy that's coming. And even though we have to deal and wrestle with silence, God's not done. Keep worshiping. Keep aligning with his truth. Keep interceding. Keep trusting. Because he is coming to restore everything. And this season, as you go through this Christmas season, remember that joy is the serious business of heaven. He is going to work a work of restoration in you, in me, in our world. We just have to wait. But it's a wait worth waiting for. Let's pray. Father. I thank you that you love us. Lord, I thank you that you are weaving your purpose through our story. That you are working to bring joy. And God, it is something we desperately need. God, I know that this is an interesting season. Because Lord, it is a season of celebration. But God, it's not just a season of celebration for, for some people. It's a season of hurt. It's a reminder of loss. It's a season of dissonance. Yet God, it reminds us that, Lord, you still care about us and that you intervene and you step into time and space in order to bring salvation to restore everything broken by sin. And so, Lord, into this moment, we, we, we bend our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring life, 
that you would bring hope, Father. We just simply need you. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, how many would just simply say, you know what? I'm wrestling with some dissonance. I have some hopes that just seem shattered. And I just need God's grace to meet me today. I want you to know that He cares about you. And if that's you this morning, we just raise your hand because I want to pray with you. See those hands. Thank you so much. And that one, thank you. And that one. Lord Jesus, you see every heart. And God, I pray right now that, Lord, your grace would be poured out upon your children. Lord, these who have raised their hands. Lord, you see the loss. You see the frustration. You, you, see, the, you see the dissonance. God, I pray that, Lord, in their heart there would be a loud resounding. That they would know that you hear their prayers. You see their cares, their concerns, and you are at work to bring restoration and life. God, would you help us in the waiting? In Jesus' name.